Hello, Vision Nation. In this episode, we're going to cover the story of Jesse Livermore. He went from being dirt poor to being the 10th wealthiest person in the whole world. And he did it through trading stocks. Paul Tudor Jones, who's a hedge fund billionaire and an investing genius, well, he would give every new hire at his hedge fund a book about Jesse Livermore. And he did this because the lessons in Jesse Livermore's story are fundamental to trading and the markets. One quick thing. This story takes place in the early 1900s. I'm going to keep all the dollar amounts in today's dollars so that it's easier to follow along. Welcome to Wall Street Vision Investing Podcast. This show is on true stories about markets and top investors. I'm Vlad Dolgochev. This show is for informational purposes only and is not investment advice. Check out the show notes for the full disclaimer. So Jesse was born in Massachusetts in 1877. His father plowed fields to make a living. It was grueling manual labor. And his dad wanted his son to follow in his footsteps. But Jesse had other plans. Jesse had this incredible memory. He was really good at math and he excelled in school. The family fought about this all the time. When Jesse turned 14, his dad pulled him right out of school and he said, You're done with schooling, boy. It's time to put your books aside and pick up a shovel. That was a crushing disappointment for young Jesse. His dreams of using his brain to make a living were looking like a fantasy. It was looking like his prick father would get his way. But lucky for him, Mrs. Livermore was not just going to sit there and watch this happen. She knew that her son meant to do big things. So she came up with an escape plan. Can you imagine the courage this woman had? This is the late 1800s, 40 years before women were first allowed to vote. For her to go against what her husband wanted must have been incredibly difficult. But she did it. She saved up every nickel she could, and a few months later, she finally got enough money saved so that Jesse could run away from home. He was only a boy, 14 years old. And he basically hitchhiked on a frickin' horse-drawn carriage all the way to Boston to make a new life for himself. This was a huge move, and Jesse was scared but he knew that this was his ticket to a brighter future. Jesse may have been 14, but he acted like somebody in their 20s. When he got to Boston, he knew he had to get a job quickly. Those few dollars his mom gave him were not going to last long. He took a deep breath, did a little pep talk to psych himself up, buttoned up his Sunday suit, and then went to a brokerage called Payne Weber. He remembered their name from articles he'd read as a kid. He went inside and scoped out the scene. 
There were people writing stock prices on big black chalkboards, and there were lots of ticker tapes running. The ticker tapes were these long strips of paper that would print out with the latest stock prices. There were also customers hanging out, buying and selling stocks. It was quite a sight. Jesse looked at all of this in awe. This was the same stuff he read and dreamed about for years. You know, you can tell a lot just by observing a room. He looked around and he saw this well-dressed older man that everyone seemed to respect. The man's name was Michael Hennessy. Jesse went up to him and said, Mr. Hennessy, I want to get a job at this brokerage. But I'm new in Boston and I don't know anybody here. Can I please use you as a reference? All right, so what does Mr. Hennessy do? He's not going to give a reference to some kid he doesn't know, right? So he started quizzing Jesse with different math problems. Of course, Jesse is a whiz kid, so he hammers out all the right answers back to back. Mr. Hennessy was very impressed. And this connection was enough for Jesse to secure his first job in investing. Jesse was really good at his job in the brokerage. But ambition was slowly burning inside his belly. He didn't just want to work there. He'd see all these wealthy clients like Mr. Hennessy making a killing trading stocks. And he started to think that he might be able to do that as well. He was tired of eating bologna sandwiches. He wanted to upgrade to some of that lobster bisque. So he also started keeping track of the markets in a little black book that he'd study every night after work. While his buddies would go out for drinks with girls, Jesse would study stocks in his tiny rented room. He noticed that stock prices followed certain patterns. And he figured that these patterns were predictable. It was basically a crude form of technical analysis. One example of a theory that Jesse developed was that if a stock crossed $100, $200, or $300 for the very first time, and the stock didn't stop at the even number but carried on with a strong momentum, like for example if the stock crossed $100 for the first time and it went to $104 or $105 instead of stopping at $101, Jesse saw that as a sign that the stock would end up a lot higher. He noticed little peculiar things like that happening in the market, and that became an edge in his trades. Now, at the time, you had these proper brokerages where only wealthy people could invest. These were the posh places like Payne Weber, where Jesse worked. But you also had these other boutiques called bucket shops. At brokerages, you actually bought and sold shares. But at the bucket shops, people who didn't have a lot of money could make bets on stock prices. So bucket shops were kind of like a gambling spot where you could bet on stocks going up or down. Some bucket shops were very bare bones and had sawdust floor and this rugged sort of atmosphere. 
but there were also high-end bucket shops that had fancy interiors with velvet couches and beautiful artwork hanging on the walls. Jesse was terrified of making his first trade, but he convinced himself that it wasn't a big deal and that it would be a good learning experience. You can call it beginner's luck, but he made money right out of the gate. He walked away profiting a hundred bucks. Within a few weeks, he was making more money in the bucket shops than he was making at his full-time job at the brokerage. By then, he patched things up with his dad, and one day he went to visit his parents for the weekend. They were sitting in their small kitchen when he told his mom that he wants to quit his job and focus on day trading full-time. And of course, his mom is against this because she wants a nice, stable future for his son, right? So get this. He then takes out $40,000 cash and puts it right on the table. That was the most money she's ever seen, and it was all the money that Jesse had made in his trades. Mrs. Livermore was not a fan of him quitting his day job. But she couldn't really say anything after she saw the proof of her son's successes. And soon after that moment, Jesse decided to give his new career path a shot. His method was simple. He'd study up on the trends that stocks were following, and then go into the shop in the morning to place down his bets. If he was right and making money, he'd let his profits ride. If he was wrong, he'd cut his losses quickly. He has this quote where he said that it's not his thinking that made him big money, but it was his sitting. He was basically talking about sticking to a position until you make the big returns, or letting your winners run while cutting your losses quickly. There were 15 bucket shops in Boston, and he would spread out his bets between all of them. He was trying to avoid gaining too much attention. The shops had mob connections, and he didn't want slick Tony busting up his kneecaps. Now, around this time is where he got this weird nickname, which was Boy Plunger. Now, this is not a plunger like a toilet plunger, but it was about him plunging into these positions. He wasn't afraid to put down tens of thousands of dollars on a single trade. Can you imagine being at this gambling parlor? And there's a teenager beside you putting down 30000 on a single stock? And then this teenager keeps on winning? People watching this would freak out! He was making money on about 70% of his trades, which is a massive advantage if you think about it. Professional blackjack players can make a living if they win 51-52% to 52 of the time. Never mind winning 70% of the time like Jesse was. Soon enough, the bucket shops figured out that this teenager was coming in night after night and costing them tens of thousands of dollars. Some bucket shops banned him, and others made specific rules just for him. These rules were different from the rules that any other customer had to deal with. And this crippled Jesse's edge. This was the Wild West back then. I mean, just picture going to Fidelity today, and they're like, oh, you've made too much money on your trades lately. 
So we're going to sell you shares for $5 higher than we sell them to anybody else. Those bucket shops were openly discriminating against Jesse. At first, his way of dealing with it was to wear disguises like a fake beard and glasses and he'd walk around with a cane. But that only worked some of the time. This went on for a while, and as he got more and more attention, he realized that the bucket shops were done with. He was becoming a big fish in a small pond, and it was time to pursue a different strategy. He moved to New York, and this is where he started to trade at a proper brokerage. There was this raging bull market in the U.S. in the early 1900s, and Jesse was making money effortlessly. He was killing it! This is also around the time that he met his first wife. They got married within a few weeks of knowing each other. For their honeymoon, they did a trip to Europe, where Jesse bought her $400,000 worth of jewelry. It was love at first sight, and a marriage that lasted all the way until he went broke. Here's how it went down. You see, in bucket shops, the ticker price was the price at which shares were traded. But when he was dealing with a brokerage that was actually buying and selling shares, the ticker price was often behind what was actually happening in the stock exchange in New York. So the ticker would be delayed by 30 minutes or more. Sometimes it could be delayed by two hours. He did some analysis and realized that there were two stocks that went up a lot recently and they were due for a correction. U.S. Steel was one, and Santa Fe Railroad was the other. So he put a trade to sell short a boatload of these shares before the market opened. Now, Jesse had amazing instincts, because when the market opened, both shares fell a lot. But what he didn't anticipate was liquidity. Jesse's trades didn't get filled at the market open because there weren't enough shares available. And by the time his order got filled, the stock price had already gone up a lot. That's the moment that everything went into slow motion and he realized that he was absolutely screwed. He panicked and tried everything he could to get out of the trade. But it was too late. At that point, the market bid up the prices of those stocks. Within a few hours, Jesse lost $1.7 million. It took him a decade to earn all that money, and at 23 years old, he was fully wiped out. He was gutted, and his wife was mega pissed at him too. She decided that being with a poor person really cramped her style. The final straw came when Jesse asked her to pawn the jewelry that he bought her a few months earlier. Her response was basically, Hell no, you're not getting any of my diamonds. And then she got on a train to Indianapolis to stay with her parents. Oof. So let's do a recap. In a few short weeks... Jesse lost all his money and his wife. 
can you imagine how soul-crushing that must have been? Going from the stud with millions of dollars in the bank and the world at his fingertips to being broke and separated? And what added salt to his wounds was that this trade would have actually worked at the bucket shops. He would have made a profit of around a million dollars if he did the exact same trade at a bucket shop. But buying and selling on the stock market at an actual brokerage was a whole different ballgame. Jesse was broke and he actually owed money as well. He went to Missouri and did some rapid-fire trading in the bucket shops there. He was able to make around $65,000 before getting banned again. Then he spent like four years trading, learning, and gradually building up his capital. He was being more cautious this time around, and he was steadily making money. His next big profit happened after a massive earthquake shook the West Coast and destroyed tons of homes and railroads in San Francisco. A lot of people in San Fran had insurance against fires, but they didn't have insurance against earthquake damage. So these jabronis were throwing Molotovs at their houses and going homeless just so they could collect their insurance payout. This led to huge fires all over the city. The stock market didn't really move with the earthquake news, but Jesse knew that this was a devastating event, so he was very bearish in his trades. He figured that the market didn't react to the earthquake yet, and that the situation was a lot worse than the newspapers made it sound. This kind of reminds me of the early days of COVID in February 2020. Do you guys remember that? It took a while for the market to react to the news and how the situation was playing out around the world. Now, Jesse had to stay patient for a few days, but the market finally cracked. By that point, he was short a staggering $100 million. He was leveraged like crazy. So if the market had gone up, even by a little bit, he'd get wiped out completely. But his trading instincts were right on and Jesse banked a profit of around $11 million. And the cool thing is that instead of hoarding all that cash, Jesse spread the wealth. He helped his family financially and bought them all nice houses. He kept on trading after his big win, and he was trying to get the timing right for when the market would crash again. He tended to have this bearish bias where he was trying to make money on the downturn of the stock market. Well, as you guys know, stocks generally go up. So if you're constantly trying to short the market, the odds are not really in your favor. Jesse got the timing wrong on a few of those shorts and that made him lose 90% of his money. I don't know about you guys, But if I used that trading style, I would have about 13 heart attacks. Those are some crazy wild swings. Some time passed, and then this interesting thing happened. Two railroad companies announced that they would issue shares, and they offered people super generous financing terms. 
this seemed like a great deal for any potential investor looking into their stock. But Jesse looked at this and saw the real story. And the real story was that the capital on Wall Street had dried up. If these railroad companies were offering such generous terms, it meant that they couldn't get a loan any other way. Jesse knew that soon he'd get his chance to make money on the short side again. It was kind of like the lead up to the global financial crisis when you had people with no income, no assets, and no prospects getting approvals for buying homes in the US. When something's too good to be true, you can see trouble brewing. He did a series of short trades and made back all the money that he lost just months earlier. This guy was the comeback king. From losing it all, to gaining millions, to losing and gaining them all over again. Just think of the type of person who do something crazy like that. He clearly had a weird desire to keep risking it all time after time. His trading wasn't just about money. But it was also about the thrill of making the right call at the right time. So 1907 rolled around. And at the time, the world economy was not in great shape. Back then, the New York Stock Exchange depended on brokers having access to short-term loans from banks. Credit was drying up, and it was harder to get loans. On top of that, there was also a run on trust companies. Customers who deposited money with the trusts started to feel like their money wasn't safe. They felt that if the trust was going to go bankrupt, they'd lose all their savings. So they rushed to withdraw all their cash. The thing is, if enough people would draw money from the trust, it would actually go bankrupt. Jesse saw all this and he made some big bets shorting the market. America didn't have the Fed at the time, so that role was essentially played by J.P. Morgan. He was like the 600-pound silverback gorilla of the banking sector. J.P. Morgan saw this whole mess playing out, and he knew that he had to get involved by giving out loans. He also took a really practical approach with the trusts. Customers were withdrawing around $230 million of cash per day. So J.P. came out and said, you cashiers are counting money too damn quickly. How about you count it four times before giving it to the customers? That slowed the outflows from 230 million to only 59 million a day. What a simple genius move on his part. Morgan also got in touch with newspaper editors and he told them to run stories of burglaries in the main headlines. Now, this was meant to scare people away from holding cash in their mattresses. And this sneaky tactic worked. It scared people to depositing their cash back into the trusts and banks. Jesse Livermore was biting his nails throughout this whole time. Before this whole mess went down, Jesse went short. So now he had a 30 million paper profit because stocks were tanking. But that was just a paper profit. If the credit didn't return, his brokerage would go bankrupt, and Jesse would go bankrupt with it. Thankfully, after J.P. Morgan got involved, 
the loans were finally being made again. As soon as liquidity came back to the market, Jesse closed his positions, made $30 million, and took a deep sigh of relief. His bearish attitude finally paid off in a big way. By the end of 1907, Jesse was under 30 years old, and he was worth tens of millions of dollars. It was this crazy turnaround, because the year before, his net worth was less than zero. So what do you do when you're young and rich? You get a private rail car, a fancy home in Manhattan, and a massive 200-foot yacht with a 12-people crew. He went to Palm Beach, he fished during the days and gambled at night, and he was also having flings with lots of different women. He was living a life of parties and relaxation. It was a summer of pure luxury. By the time it came to an end, Jesse had spent $14 million. His new toys cost $3 million a year just for the maintenance. So Jesse had to roll up his sleeves again and start making money, or he'd be broke very soon. The trading successes didn't last, and he went on to have several years of trading and losing money and barely scraping by. He kept losing money until he owed $30 million to different brokerages. Things got so bad that he started relying on his family financially. This is also around the time that he officially declared bankruptcy for the first time. And he had a specific reason that he wanted to do it. The psychological pressure of owing all this money to the brokerages was hurting his trading ability. It was causing him to trade stocks in weird ways because he'd have people knocking on his door saying, Jesse, where's my money? When he was buying a thousand shares of DuPont Company, he wasn't just thinking about the odds of the stock going up in price. He was also thinking, oh gosh, this has to work or how am I going to pay back that 30 million? It was making him too desperate. Each trade felt like a do-or-die moment for him. Crazy thing is that after declaring bankruptcy, he went on to have this amazing streak of profitable trades where he was making money again. It seemed that as soon as he didn't owe any money, he got his mojo back. So who knows, maybe it was just a psychological thing. Now check this out. After getting some money again, he went back to all the people that he owed money to and paid them all back. He didn't have to do that. This was just Jesse doing what he believed was right. Now Jesse knew how to make money in bull markets and bear markets. But he couldn't quite make the same sorts of profits in sideways markets. When the stock market was going sideways, he'd kind of lose his patience and switch into commodities like coffee, wheat, or sugar. Commodities were volatile, and a lot of times they'd be going through booms or busts while the stocks did nothing. Jesse sussed out this trade that he figured was a sure thing. At the time, the U.S. just joined World War I, 
and most commodities in the US were going through a big boom. Coffee was one of the few commodities that didn't go up in price. Jesse figured that coffee is a luxury, and during times of war, most trade between South America and the US would focus on essential items and not luxury goods. Plus, German U-boats torpedoed the hell out of cargo ships. So there was this dwindling supply of ships available to ship globally. Since coffee was very cheap at the time, Jesse figured that soon enough it would also go on this big run. It was just a simple bet on the demand staying roughly the same, but supply decreasing, which would drive the prices up. Jesse went all in on this coffee trade. He bought future contracts and actual coffee bean. The people selling the coffee short were mostly coffee roasters trying to lock in the price at which they could sell coffee. Jesse stayed patient with his trade for over a year, but he was convinced that it would work out. He even lost about 10 million in the process because some of the contracts expired out of the money but he stuck to his game plan. So about a year later, the price of coffee finally started to go up quickly. The coffee roasters were freaking out because they had sold short a bunch of those coffee contracts. So if the price kept increasing, they'd lose tons of money. So what did they do? These sly foxes lobbied the government in Washington. The roasters were basically saying that Jesse and traders like him were trying to make money from speculation and that the roasters wanted to protect the American breakfast by making coffee cheap and accessible to everybody. It was a load of baloney. This wasn't the full picture at all. The roasters were just trying to look after their own self-interest. But the government took their side and put a ceiling on the price of coffee beans which meant that Jesse would not make any money on this. Jesse was super pissed. He stayed patient with his trade for over a year, focusing all his time, focus, and energy on it. And now the roasters pulled a fast one on him. This cost him over $100 million in potential profits. And it was because the coffee roasters were playing dirty. He knew that all he could do was exit all his coffee positions and try to forget about this. He ended up essentially breaking even on this trade instead of making the 100 million profit he was supposed to make. Despite the coffee ordeal, Jesse kept on being mostly successful in his trades, and soon enough he was worth a lot of money again. By then Jesse remarried a second wife and they had two kids together. At the time, they were spending money like crazy. They had a giant yacht and a team of 80 staff just to service their small family. They had cooks, cleaners, drivers, boat crew, and on and on. And they bought a massive mansion on Long Island. Now, there were wealthier families in America, like J.P. Morgan's family, for example. But Livermore's family was spending more money on their lifestyle than the Morgans were. Jesse also went all out on his Manhattan office. He spent millions renovating and designing it. 
He set up the communication lines so that he had direct access to brokers and the latest news from all over the world. He had 60 people working for him, and he recruited some of the brightest minds from America's top universities. This guy was running a hedge fund on steroids. And to maintain security, none of the staff were allowed to leave the offices during trading hours. Jesse wanted total focus and commitment. By the time 1929 rolled around, he had one of the most sophisticated investment firms in America. Back then was the first time that you could actually make international long-distance calls. This was the first time that you could call Europe from the U.S. And of course, the calls cost like $400 a minute. But Jesse would spend thousands a month on this. And on one of these calls, he found out that the Bank of England would raise interest rates and that a large conglomerate company in Europe was in big financial trouble. No one in the US knew about this yet. The newspapers didn't even publish any of this information. And those were some of the clues that he needed to make a big bet on a market correction. He borrowed money against his yacht and his mansion. He convinced all his brokers to give him as much leverage as possible so he could get around $12 billion of capital against his $500 million of equity. This was a super tense time and Jesse didn't want to leave anything to chance. He was making these massive short bets. During this stretch, he often slept in his office to stay close to the action. And then, the 1929 crash happened. There were many reasons for the crash, but you can essentially boil it down to excessive speculation leading to a big bubble. People were gambling on the stock market with borrowed money, and then the bubble burst, and those same people didn't have the money to pay back their loans. The 1929 crash wiped out many investors completely. People had to declare bankruptcy at a huge rate. But of course, Jesse was short the market. The week of Black Tuesday, he made $1.2 billion. There was this crazy scene that happened after the crash when Jesse finally came home. His wife and their two kids are at the door and his mother-in-law is in the background and they're all crying. Everyone in the family is bawling their eyes out looking up at Jesse. His kids are yelling, Daddy, Daddy, are we broke? They've all heard the news that Wall Street took a beating, and they're assuming the worst. It might be time to sell all their fancy cars and yachts and move to a basement apartment in New Jersey. And then Jesse explains that instead of that happening, they're now more rich than anyone could imagine. His latest trades made him the top 10th richest person in the whole world. He was 52 years young and at the top of his game. And now you're probably thinking, great, that's where he's finally going to put some money aside and live off the dividends, right? Well, not so much. 
A guy whose whole life is about making massive bets, risking all his capital, is not just going to want to take it easy. So he kept on trading. And he went on this skid of making terrible market calls and going against his own trading rules. In a span of 18 months, he lost nearly $660 million. By 1933, he lost all the money he made during the crash. He also went through a nasty divorce in the middle of all of this, and that cost him another big settlement. After the 1929 market crash, there were a bunch of laws created to address speculation and market manipulation. That's when the SEC was formed as well. Some of the old tricks that Livermore used to pull became illegal, and he was now in his 50s which made learning new ways of making money that much harder. This was a crushing blow for Livermore, and it caused him to go into a deep depression. He eventually remarried to a third wife, and this story does not have a happy ending. Jesse just couldn't get his trading mojo back, and he was in this downward spiral. It eventually led him to commit suicide at age 63. This is so bizarre, but the woman he married, his third wife, all five of her husbands had committed suicide. Police did all sorts of investigating and they didn't find any foul play. A very tragic ending to a fascinating life. Jesse was a man who reached the highest highs and the lowest lows.